Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our word heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. We are joined with uh, um, an author and lecturer of uh, Jack the Ripper, and his book is called The Ripper, Ripper's Time, and uh, the name is Mark Vogel. So thank you for joining us today, Mark. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. Oh, see if you say that after the interview. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and now, okay, so, so Mark, um, let's talk about your history. Um, what did you start with before you got into writing these books? Like, what were you, you were um, into uh, psychology, I believe, of some sort? Yes, I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been in the field of mental health full-time for 32 years. Um, I currently work at a VA hospital where I help our war vets who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. I've been there 19 years. Uh, but before the VA, I spent a couple of years in the New Jersey prison system. Um, I was doing uh, parole evaluations, basically psychological evaluations of inmates prior to their uh, parole hearings. Um, interviewed all kinds of murderers and rapists and pedophiles, charming personalities. Hmm. Um, and that sparked my interest in uh, forensic psych. Um, I began studying different murder cases, and I was most beguiled by the Jack the Ripper case. And I've been studying that since the early 2000s. Um, I, and then eventually decided to take my knowledge of the case and weave it into a historical fiction novel. Um, so my novel, The Ripper's Time... Um, what it incorporates all the facts of the original case, but it also involves my fictional story. Um, the protagonist is a modern history professor who has been studying the Jack the Ripper case all his life, and 
he's become enamored with Catherine Eddowes. It gets explained in the book what the connection is, but he's fallen in love with her from afar. His friends think he's crazy, but he finds a way uh, to go back to 1888 London, and his plan is to stop the killer and save her life. And he goes back. um, I I was telling Michael this the other day. You know, I I didn't want to write a time travel story where, you know, the scientist just uh, invented the hoojigats, and he goes back in time with it. I wanted something that at least had a toehold in reality. So I, I read this book about uh, called The New Time Travelers, which outlined all the modern theories in time travel and physics. And while a good chunk of the book was over my head, um, I did find one nugget from an astrophysicist at the University of Massachusetts, and I used that idea in my book to get my protagonist back to 1888. Um, So his initial plan is to save Catherine, but as his best friend points out to him, you know, you have the ability to go back in time. You can't just save her. You can't let the other victims die. It would be unconscionable. So he decides to go back to the beginning. Um, Things don't work out very well. I mean, I I explore various paradoxes and problems with time travel in the book, one of them being the idea that you really can't change what happened. If it's already happened, no matter what you do, it's still going to happen. And so he tries to intervene at the first three victims, and he runs into some difficulties and wonders whether he can actually end up changing time. What what was the concept? Like when you were writing this, um, at the end of of the read, what were you hoping people would uh, get from the book or take home from that book? Um. I don't know if I had something specific in mind that I wanted people to take home. Um, I really don't have an answer to that. I didn't have anything specific in mind. Well, what's interesting, uh, Mark, that uh, was is that when we're doing historical fiction, uh, that it, even though it's fiction, you better have your facts right. And, and me, my background being uh, uh, the Whitechapel murders as well. So the, the question that I have was, uh, you know, like I had reviewed some other books that were based on Jack the Ripper, and it always bothered me because you could see that the author had just a, a cursory knowledge of it and so made a few uh, mistakes. And one of the things that was interesting when we had spoken in the past was that uh, Catherine Eddowes at, uh, at 2 o'clock had sold her boyfriend's shoes. So she actually had a boyfriend that she was uh, with prior to this, or at the time. And then... Uh, mm-hmm. I'd like I'd, I'd like them to, to know how you how you uh, worked with that. How I worked with what exactly? With uh, here is your protagonist is in love with Catherine Eddowes while Catherine Eddowes has a boyfriend. But it's kind of interesting how you fix that. Well, well, I, I, I well I fixed that with fiction. Um, I had to do <laughs> something. With, I had to do something with her relationship with her boyfriend. Um, because it, it would have become a problem. I mean, how does he swoop in there? Okay, he can save her life, but then what is he going to do? Steal her away from her boyfriend? Is he going to be a cad? Um, so I had to fictionalize the relationship between Catherine and John Kelly to make John Kelly unlikable, shall we say? Mm-hmm. So, so Catherine would want to leave him and, and be with my protagonist. So that, that's where a little bit of, I have to take a little bit of dramatic license there. Mm-hmm. So you being, uh, I, I think over 40 lectures you've done already, uh, is that correct? Yes, 
uh, at over 40 different libraries and a few private institutions, in, in mostly in New Jersey. And then, uh, with your your culinary background, you're, you had a non your, your nonfiction. You've got a lot of nonfiction in you. What did you uh, think about writing a fiction novel uh, as opposed to being such a nonfiction guy? In addition to my psychology career, I always loved food and wine, and I decided back in 2002 to pursue that professionally, and I enrolled in the Institute of Culinary Education in Manhattan, and they had a weekend program, so for nine months, every Saturday and Sunday, I went there, graduated from culinary school, worked in restaurants part-time for about a year, taught cooking classes for 10 years, uh, edited cookbooks for a New York publisher, and I wrote a food and wine column over the course of 16 years. And over that 16-year span, I published 400 articles on food and wine, uh, all nonfiction, of course. Mm-hmm. And then uh, one day back in 2013, um, I, I remember we had some type of storm. We were out of electricity for a couple of days, so my wife and I were holed up in a hotel waiting for the power to come back on, and I was reading Edgar Allan Poe, as I had before, but this time it it stuck with me more, and that inspired me to start writing fiction. Uh, I wrote a horror poem that I got published in a literary journal, then I wrote a short story, which also got published, and then I took that short story called The Lake House and turned that into the first chapter of my first novel, uh, Crestwood Lake. Uh, I have Crestwood Lake and its sequel, Crestwood Lake 2. It's a horror series about the devil and a coven of witches in northern Vermont. So to get back to your question, how did it feel writing fiction, it was a refreshing change. Um, and I actually enjoy writing fiction much more than the nonfiction. As much as I still love food and wine, and I have a cookbook coming out next year, um, I love writing the fiction because I can just take my imagination and run with it. And, and I enjoy just creating my own little world and the characters and the little twists in the plot, um, I, I somehow find that more gratifying internally than the nonfiction. Yeah, that's so interesting because uh, myself, I write both fiction and nonfiction, and it is interesting when you get hooked into that fiction world, it's hard to escape because you're having so much fun. So when you were talking about yeah. that, it's so interesting. Yeah, the the creativity um, and and having the freedom pretty much to do whatever you want to do with your creativity. You know, just let your mind go wherever it wants to go. There's something therapeutic about that. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, probably because you're a clinical psychologist, you'd think about that therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I think writing the fiction is my therapy. You know, a lot of people ask, why do you write horror? They're, they're looking for some dark and sordid reason in the recesses of your psyche about why you write about death and murder and mayhem. And, and for me, I spend every day, all day, dealing with real people and real-life problems. And so to retreat into the world of the paranormal, um, it, it, it gets that's my escape. Mm-hmm. Um, even though my characters also deal with real-life problems in the stories, it's still an escape for me to be able to use my imagination and and go in that direction and, and get away from day to day reality. Right, right. Have you ever thought about who is Jack the Ripper? And with your background in in uh, psychology, have have you ever come to um, any uh, kind of decision on who you think it is? 
My own personal opinion is it's somebody whose whose name has never come to light. Um, you know, back in 1888, um, most of the police and the authorities at the time obviously did not know as much about serial murder as we do today. There were a couple of ex exceptions. I believe Dr. Bond had a profile of the killer, which was uh, reasonably accurate. But by and large, you know, your beat cop, you know, they were expecting to find someone who was a raving lunatic, um, which I don't think Jack the Ripper was. Uh, I think he was sexually motivated, probably had the paraphilia called pecarism. Um, he was probably a Ted Bundy type, charming, intelligent, articulate. Um, he probably had his own room because, you know, you can't go back to a lodging house full of 12 to 16 other people with women's organs. You can't come home to a wife and kids with a, a woman's uterus. You know, what are you going to do? Say, put this in the fridge for me, honey? You know, so he has to have his own room where he can wash up, do whatever he's doing with the organs, which means he's not indigent. He has some type of employment. He's not wealthy, but he works full time, maybe in one of the slaughterhouses in the area. So the police, who conducted hundreds of interviews, they went door to door. I would not be surprised if they came across this gentleman who appeared completely normal on the surface, was articulate, intelligent, was working, and seemed completely quote-unquote normal, and said, nah, this is not who we're looking for, and moved on, and, and therefore his name never came to light. That, that's my own little theory. <laughs> so you think he was far ahead of uh, the types of killers that were around at the time? What, what do you mean by far ahead? What, um, more, more advanced, more, uh, more evolved than the average killer that was around in the 1800s. Are you thinking like in terms of what the old dichotomy, the disorganized versus organized killer? Yeah, yeah he, like he seems so, um, I don't want to say planned, but there, there was some sort of a, an angle here. There was something going on, I think, but maybe I'm wrong. No, no, I, I would agree with that. Um, they don't use the disorganized, organized dichotomy as much anymore. It, it, it's not clear-cut, but nevertheless, he, he would fit the profile more of an organized-type killer. He's not psychotic. He's not a raving lunatic. Um, he has his mental faculties. He has this monstrous sexual pathology internally. Um, but he has the psychological wherewithal on the brains and the fortitude to plan his crimes, to bring his knife or whatever else he needs. You know, and, and there's some organization to, to the crimes. He absolutely knows the area, the passageways, the alleyways. Some speculate he might have known the Bobby's beats. That, that would have not been difficult to do. So, yeah, he's careful. He, he, he's not just a, a completely impulsive a raving lunatic. And, and pecorism, what do you mean by that? Like, what is that? Pecorism is a very rare paraphilia uh, where the person is aroused by penetrating, stabbing, or cutting open the other individual. Um, there was a famous French nobleman back in the 1400s, uh, Gilles Dirat, who used to uh, murder and mutilate little boys. And, and there's been a few other cases of it in history. It, it's very rare. Um, but based on what he did to the victims um, and the absence of any evidence that he had sex with the victims, so a lot of people in my lecture say, well, he had sex with the victims? And I'm saying, no, you're thinking like a normal person. He, he's not aroused by normal intercourse w with a female body. He's aroused 
by the, the mutilation, by cutting them open, there's strong evidence that he strangled them first, particularly with Marianne Nichols and uh, Annie Chapman. They had bruises on their neck and mouth. Annie Chapman had signs of asphyxia. Uh, there was no blood on the front of Marianne Nichols' clothes. So clearly if her heart was beating when he slit her throat, there would have been some arterial spray. So there's evidence that he, he strangles them first. He, he's not so much about killing him. That, that's not the goal. The goal is the mutilations. That's what you know, turns him on. Then, then why would it have to be a female? Like, would he do this to males, too, do you think? Generally, killers stick within their sexuality. So a heterosexual serial killer will kill the opposite sex, and a homosexual serial killer will kill the same sex. There are exceptions. There's always exceptions in psychology. Nothing is 100%. But most serial killers stick within their particular sexual orientation. Was there something about Catherine Eddowes to make you pick her to be the center of of, of the book? Um, th- th- there is something about her life that I, that I, I found interesting, uh, maybe because we know a little bit more about her life than some of the other victims. Uh, we have a little bit more of her history, um, thanks to John Kelly and her daughter who gave testimony at the inquest. So we know further back what her life was like, a little bit more details than the other ones. So she, I don't know, not to um, minimize the other victims in any way, but in, in a way Catherine seems more human because we know more about her. She comes to life more for me. Um, and also, quite frankly, it worked for me as a plot device to have it be a later victim that my protagonist wanted to save because then I could have him trying to save the first three and things not going so well and the complications. and You know, it, it, it added to the plot of the whole story. So, and I didn't uh, want to use Mary Jane Kelly because she's already been the subject of historical fiction. So Catherine Eddowes worked out perfectly for me. Yeah, I was curious about that because the uh, uh, Catherine, I mean, uh, Mary Jane Kelly was, if any of them were attractive, it would have been Mary Jane Kelly. And then, uh, so I, I was curious the why you would not have selected that. But then again, here from hell, and every everything talks about Mary Jane Kelly. But the other question I had was that there are a lot uh, a lot of uh, experts that they they question Mary Jane Kelly if she was part of the uh, canonical. You know, even though she's a canonical five, was she part of Jack River? What do you think? Oh, I, I think she absolutely was. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's any question. Yeah. So basically, and I agree with that. It's, I think she fits both the the uh, mo and the offender signature in that case. Absolutely. So yes, and it fits with his um, uh, increasing, um, you know, the, the, the fact that with each murder, each murder, he has to go further and further to, to mm-hmm. be satisfied. The only exception, of course, being Liz Stride, the common theory being that he was probably interrupted by Louis Dimeschutz when he was coming down, you know, the cobblestone street with his horse and carriage. And uh, how, with Polly that, Nichols the same way? Murder. I'm sorry? Polly Nichols the same way? Or you just think that's augmented? Well, you know, like, well, Catherine Eddowes, right, well, so Catherine Eddowes interrupted, how about Polly Nichols? 
you know, because she only had the attack to the abdomen? Right. Um, no, well, well, there's no evidence that he was interrupted. Um, he prob- that's as probably as far as he wanted to go at that point. And then you have Annie Chapman, who's killed almost the same way, except now he extracts her bowels and removes her uterus and parts of her bladder and vagina. And then if we can skip the Catherine Eddowes, because he got interrupted with Liz Stride, he, right. he goes a little bit further, he cuts out part of her colon, he stabs her liver, um, and then, of course, Mary Jane Kelly, when he had time and privacy and a private room, and he could just completely indulge his fantasies. So in your fiction novel, did uh, did the offender already uh, was was Catherine Eddowes like the next on the uh, and he saves her kind of thing? Oh, I don't want to give anything away, but do, is it like a progression that he's following? Does he start with uh, let's say um, get there earlier to try to solve the case before, or does he just go right to Catherine Eddowes? No, he he arrives early. He he arrives in uh, early August um, before Marianne Nichols to have okay. some time to scoop out the area, uh, buy uh, clothing that's appropriate for the time and place, and, you know, get get ready. A- and then his plan is to intercede at Marianne Nichols' murder, and if he fails, well, then he can move on to Annie Chapman's and then to Liz Stride's, okay. which fate causes him to have to do so. <laughs> okay. And does he does uh, our, our uh, protagonist have to uh, kind of... Uh, Meet the antagonist soon, and then it gets pretty dramatic. <laughs> uh, yes, it does. <laughs> so, you know, him and Catherine end up in a cat and mouse game with the real killer. Oh, uh, that sounds interesting. And and it also involves uh, Inspector Helson at the time. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is there a reason why certain serial killers like Jack the Ripper have stayed with us for all these years? In your opinion, like. Well, in Jack the Ripper's case, I, I think there are three things that make uh, the case so beguiling. First off is the fact that it was never solved. There wouldn't be anywhere near the interest in the case today if it had been solved. I, there would still be interest, but it would not be at the level there is today. Uh, the second thing is the horrendous things that he did to the victims. Um, and the third, I think for Americans is the fact that it's set in Victorian London adds this, like, romanticized mystique to the case. But that time in London was really not that great. <laughs> no, it wasn't. But I, I, think the, I think your average modern American's perception of Victorian London is like My Fair Lady. Um, and I, I don't think the average person knows how horrendous the, the East End was and the conditions exactly. There, there's, like I said, there, there's this, there's this romanticized mystique about Victorian London. And I'm wondering how Sherlock Holmes, the popularity of that, uh, helped it out too. Uh, certainly possible. Um, I, I've had more than one person at my lectures ask me, uh, "And where was Sherlock Holmes when all this was going on?" <laughs> Well, I, and, and recently we have someone, I think it was on the History Channel, claim that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle was Jack the Ripper. So. Yeah, that's one of the theories. I mean, there's yeah. no evidence that he was. It's him. All right. That's right. So, at, oh, I'm sorry. Go, no, go ahead. Okay, then, uh, so is this a kind of a part one, part two trilogy possibility, or would uh, or you don't know yet? 
Um, I don't know yet. I, I hadn't necessarily planned on, on doing another one. Um, I, I, so I'm, I'll leave it at if I'm not sure at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I will be doing a third part to my Crestwood Lake series. I think there will be a third one there. That's, that seems to be calling me back. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, your Crestwood Lake, that's the... Um is that like a satanic panic kind of idea, or is this it, really- it, it's a horror? Yeah, it's a horror series about the devil and his coven of witches and demons in northern Vermont and their attempts to take over the town and that area of the state and to get a foothold on Earth to win the eventual battle with God. Mm-hmm. Um, the the protag- there's a couple of the main protagonists is the chief of police a burly John Wayne type by the name of Butch Morgan, who, who's in love with the local barmaid, Vicky, who at one point became part of the uh, the, the, the witch's cult. Um, and then he has a sidekick, this elderly, um, skirt-chasing alcoholic, um, who's a historian, uh, who helps him in his uh, attempts to unravel what is going on in his town and eventually defeat the devil. Mm. Could have just run for president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would have been a little easier, it seems. Uh, do you, now, do you think that um, serial killers are evolving from what the Jack the Ripper was to nowadays? Um, no, not necessarily. I, 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 I think you could find the same kinds throughout history. I, I'm not. I don't know how much um, the social-cultural environment shapes who they are. I mean, I, I, it must have some influence, but I, I think it's more intrapsychic forces, possibly even biological underpinnings. You know, they're, they're starting to find out more and more that some of the sexual disorders are rooted in uh, certain areas of the brain and the biochemistry. So, so uh, I, th- I think when you take some aberrant biology and then I- inevitably incorporate some uh, maladaptive experiences in the formative years, um, you, you develop this pattern, at least for the sexual serial killers. For example, um, you, it's not uncommon to find that there has been some kind of pairing between violence and sexuality. You know, Freud said we had a sexual drive and an aggressive drive, and never the two should meet. Um, to, to give you one example, there's... Um, Joe Callinger, he was a serial murderer in the 70s. His nickname was The Shoemaker. And he had told investigators after he was arrested and imprisoned that when he was a prepubescent boy, he would look at naked pictures of women and he would slash them with a knife while he masturbated. Now, why he did this in the first place is anybody's guess. But but the pattern stuck. And, and, and the intermingling of the violence and the sexuality stuck. And, and then they fantasize about this repeatedly over the adolescent years. They masturbate to the fantasy. And it just becomes cemented into the bedrock of their sexuality. And it reaches a point where the impulses are so powerful that they have to start to act on them. That, that's that's the, the sexual serial murder pattern. There, there are... That's a very common one. There are also, of course, serial killers who are psychotic who are not doing it for sexual reasons. But the sexual pattern is one of the most common. And and there's quite a difference between a serial killer and a mass killer, right? Like they have a different intention. Yes. Well, 
the serial killer c- kills multiple victims over a period of time where the mass murderer it's all done it all at once and, and yes they do have different intentions the the, the mass murderer uh, t- he's not acting out of sexual motives you know there's different types of mass murders a very common profile you know it is the loner misfit who's never really completely fit in uh he's a little bit paranoid mistrustful of people's motives um he, he doesn't function that well in life he has conflicts with people and he stockpiles these grudges of course externalizing it and blaming it on the world and everyone else never taking any responsibility for his role in, in the friction between him and his environment and he reaches a point where he literally explodes and exacts his revenge and then often takes his own life. Hmm. Yes, a serial killer will um, will kill with plans to escape in general, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So now, what what do you do in your lectures? Like, what, what are you um, talking about? Is it Jack the Ripper in general, or do you talk about suspects or um, psychology behind who Jack the Ripper was? No, no mostly the, the lecture, is, I present, I outline the case from A to Z. Uh, it's an hour and a half lecture. It's a PowerPoint presentation with then and now photos of the murder sites and other assorted locations around London. And I basically outline the entire case, the victims, you know, some of the facts. Um, I don't go much into uh, suspects you know, there's been 200 suspects named since the 19th century, uh, and there's little hard evidence on any of them. So, so I- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, 
You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I don't focus it much on suspects. I just keep it mostly confined to the facts of the case. And, and then at the end of the lecture, I, I do talk about um, how he, the Ripper eluded uh, capture, and I do give a profile of Jack the Ripper and then talk a little bit about what we discussed before, the sexual aspects of serial murder and, in his case, pickerism. <clears throat> wow. Well, so I've, oh, yep. Go ahead. No, you finish. Well, I was going to go back to your fiction world uh, because it's like you're connected to both of them. But even more so, with even earlier than that, what particular type of wine do you drink when you start to write your novel? <laughs> oh, Chianti. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't drink when I write. Um, but in terms of what wine I like, um, I, I like what I call the killer bees. Uh, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Barolo, and Brunello di Montalcino. Uh, I love Italian and French reds. Um, there are some whites that I like. I love champagne, but the, the French and Italian reds are my favorite. <laughs> well, there you have it. Have right you on. ever had Have you ever had a Canadian uh, wine? I don't believe I ever have. I know they make some nice ice wines, um, but I don't think I've ever had a Canadian one. <laughs> don't know what you're missing. <laughs> well, Put one in front of me, I'll drink it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. Wow. Well, that's pretty That's pretty interesting, I'll tell you. So your profile on Jack the Ripper, uh, he was a white male. What's, what about him being an American rather than uh, English? Is that possible? Anything's possible. There's no evidence that he was. Um, I mean, I, I would definitely better pay Jack that he was... Uh, uh, either indig indigenous Englishman or possibly a Jewish immigrant, that's possible. Um, there's no way of knowing. Um, but he was one of the two, which was the dominant ethnic groups in the East End at the time, the English and the Jewish. I have to wonder, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a really strange one. Uh, have, you, have you ever followed any other serial killers, or was just Jack the Ripper the one? I, I, I've read uh, other cases. I, I haven't studied any of them to the same degree of depth that I have with Jack the Ripper. Um, I, I, I found uh, Son of Sam's case very interesting, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ed Kemper, Ted Bundy, of course, but none of them did I study to the depth of Jack the Ripper. Do you think there's a particular element that makes people... Um attracted to these serial killers like there's plenty of serial killers out there why is it just certain ones that that blow up i mean because uh, there's there's so many yeah i i i think it's the cases where it, it could either be the number of victims uh like with a ted bundy um or it could be the bizarre things that they did to the, the victims like a jeffrey dahmer uh, so, so I think uh, w when the case is more lurid, uh, it attracts more fascination. Man had, we are fascinated with the macabre. I mean, just look at the popularity of horror books and movies. Just, you know, drive down a highway where there's an accident on the other side. Everybody's slowing down to get a peek. Uh, so we, we have this fascination with the macabre um, until man experiences the macabre. 
then it's no longer a fascination. Then, then, then horror becomes real. And I'm thinking of the vets that I work with who've been to combat, who have been through horrific experiences, unimaginable experiences of carnage. Uh, they're not into the macabre. They want nothing to do with the macabre. You know, and, and they often have people asking them dumb questions like, did you kill anybody? You know, because, you know, for the person asking that question, it, it's a video game. It's a John Wayne movie. And, and that's good, so far from the truth. Um, but, but the point I'm making is that and, and to, if you're just average Joe Schmo and you haven't experienced real horror, there is something alluring about the macabre. Um, well, that's probably why Halloween is so exciting. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, one of the things about Ted Bundy, uh, what was, is really intriguing to me, and I think it would be how someone has such charisma and smile, how this person in in an instant could eat your liver and, and not oh worry about it. And I think I, that I, also I, is like makes you know people want to know you know is this is my neighbor. Could they possibly be able to do that? <laughs> so to Absolutely. understand these serial offenders, I, I, I think it is the thickest and most dangerous pathology on the planet. You can have a person who, on the surface, is normal by every measure, and inside lurks an unspeakable monster that can turn on a dime. Mm -hmm. and, and I think yes, people grapple with how is that possible. How can you be normal and charming and intelligent and articulate and socially engaging and handsome and, and then do these things to people that they do? I, I, I think it, it's that conundrum that, that, in part, it makes it so alluring as to what is going on here. Right, right. I just um, spent a week with a serial killer in prison. Um, now, he's married, and... Um, his wife um, has two children from a previous marriage. And mm -hmm. um, I, I have to wonder, um, because he, was, uh, he had killed two, two uh, young girls as well in his uh, escapades, as we say, and uh, he, he raped them, shot them, and burned their bodies. Um, mm. how, do, how does a woman find that attractive? And, and I don't mean that, I'm not trying to be mean to this lady but what would what would possess her uh to go online and find a person like that go meet them eventually marry them and have two small children herself like that's that's what's really confusing to me she she knew about what he did prior to uh engaging yes. him yes yeah oh she was one of those women who fall in love with guys in prison and marry them and whatnot yeah. Uh, well, I mean, clearly these these women are very disturbed in their own right. I mean, they're, they're very often personality disordered, uh, and, and they have some very bizarre thinking uh, of their own. Uh, they're not overtly psychotic. You know, there are people who are very disturbed but are not overtly crazy. They're not hearing voices. They don't believe Martians are putting transmitters in their liver. You know, so they're, they're not overtly crazy. But they're very disturbed internally in terms of the way they conceptualize people, situations, the world. And in some twisted way, she probably sees him as a victim and maybe herself as a savior and that he's just misunderstood and needs to be loved. She's probably codependent, maybe an enabler, uh, probably worse than that. I mean, she's probably got some severe character pathology. I mean, you'd have to. 
you have you have to twist reality in order to justify marrying a man who's a monster. You know, you you have to do some type of mental gymnastics that makes that okay. And, and only someone who, in plain English, is very disturbed can do that. Mm-hmm. Well, for her, she um, she she uh, told me that she um, uh, brought God to him, and he's got a cleansed soul now. That he's uh, yeah, sure, okay. Sure. Yeah, there, there's, yeah, there's the religious angle too, and I don't want to offend people who might have spiritual beliefs, but I, I mean, you, you, you get you, the fact remains that. You know, religion attracts people whose thinking is a little bit on the fringe and not that well, you know, grounded in reality. I mean, it's mysticism. You know, it's it, it rife with people who, you know, mm, are a taco short of a combo meal. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that, yeah, they forgot that taco. <laughs> um, well, it's pretty, it's disturbing anyway because uh, people like that are in charge of children that now. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm not saying that, people, you know, that most people who are religious are kooky. I, I'm just saying that religion, by its very nature, is attractive to people whose you know psyche is a little bit on the fringe. If you know what I mean. So, oh, I, so I, basically, I like if someone's got has a pathology already, then kind of could utilize that. Um, that path has what? Has a pathology already could be using that uh, kind of pathway. <laughs> Uh, religion to kind of almost exploit it. You, you don't have a good grip on reality. You know, religion helps fill that gap. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, I found it to be quite strange, um, very bizarre that um, mm-hmm. someone could feel that way. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just it's just it's shocking. So. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about now. So you have a website, right? Yes, uh, it's uh, Mark Vogel, M-A-R-K-V-O-G-E-L, my name, MarkVogel.info. Fantastic. Now, we're going to have that on our website as well, and we'll have your books up, and people listening to the app or listening to the station can just go one click and pick up the book or go to your website. So that'll be uh, for our listeners. Thank you. Thank you very much. What, I, I, now, who is your big influences in writing? Like, who do you read? You know, I, I, I don't read that much. Um, I, I, I like writing more than I do reading, and especially since I started writing. Usually when I have some free time, uh, I'll write instead of read. Um, I have read a couple of Stephen King's books. I, I've read a, you know, a good deal of Edgar Allan Poe. I like his stuff. Um, but but I, I don't have a, a large repertoire, shall we say, of uh, books and writers that I've read. Okay. Um, I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we've we're come to the end of the time, so I, I just want to thank you for being on the show and, and just talking about your, um, your books and kind of your experience and, and the psychology of, of a serial killer like Jack the Ripper. Well, thank you again for having me. It has been an absolute honor. Thank you, Mark. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.